there, Bravery Board listeners. It's Michelle. I just thought I would change things up a little bit. If you are a longtime listener of the Bravery Board, you know that we have an intro where we all introduce ourselves, but I just felt like shaking it up. I don't know. Just felt like being different. Um, As I said, my name's Michelle. The rest of the members of the Bravery Board are Kate, Lindsay, and Jen. And if you go to www.thebraveryboard.com, you'll learn more about them and about what we do. We are just women who care a lot about growth and thriving, so we host this podcast and we host gatherings uh, quarterly so that we can bring people together to talk about thriving. Hope you enjoy this awesome podcast. It is me talking about teamwork. Enjoy. It's been a really fun topic for me, Um, and we're going to talk about the the idea of there is no I in team. You guys have all heard that, right? It's uh, talked about by sports coaches, memes, children. I've heard it many times from, from my uh, seven-year, almost seven-year-old. He turned seven on Wednesday. So cute. Um, anyway, so I've heard a lot about that, and I thought that would be kind of a fun place to start. Let's start there. So the idea of, the, of there being no I in team to me means individuality be damned. It doesn't matter if you're an individual, whenever you're part of a team, you have to be coalescing with the team. You have to harmonize, you have to all work together. And that one individual that stands out, no, you cannot. So we're gonna talk about that, is that true? (laughs) So the first thing we're gonna talk talk about is my son, the really cute one over here in the corner. Um, But the thing that sticks out to me is this, this is Harper. And her little scowl is like the cutest thing ever. But this is his soccer team. So whenever we, I was researching this topic and thinking about the topic of teamwork, we kind of all decide what, what topics we want to talk about like months in advance and I knew it was, I was my turn to talk so I've kind of been thinking about it and marinating on teamwork for a while. And one of the things I did was I asked my six-year-old, seven-year-old, um, what does teamwork mean to him? Because he's in first grade so he's in that beginning part of childhood where he's learning all the like major life lessons and all the social skills. So I thought that he would be a great place to start. So I asked him, what does teamwork mean to you? And he, his answer was, everyone has to get something out of it. That was the first thing that came out of his mouth. And I was like, okay, what does that mean exactly? And I think he could tell that didn't really quite make sense. So he thought about it for a really long time. And he said, you have to pass the ball. My six-year-old saying, you have to pass the ball. So I was like, okay, buddy, what does that mean? Like, tell me what does that mean for you? And he was like, well, and he went on to explain a couple things that he's learned as he's grown from being that kid in the soccer team or soccer club that basically just like kicks it and then tries to get the goal, but they just kind of stand there and look at their feet the whole time. He's gone from that to actually learning how to pass and like the rules of soccer. And one of the things that the coach has driven into them is passing the ball. So his, his answer about what that meant was, If there's somebody in front of you that's closer to the goal, you have to pass it to them instead of trying to make it yourself because they might be able to get into the goal faster than you could or better than you could. I was like, yeah, but that's that's a good answer. The second answer was, if you have somebody on your team who's maybe not as good as you are, you still have to pass the ball because they have to learn how to be able to make the goals too. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. You're learning a lot there, kiddo. Um, but it made me think, passing the ball. That's a pretty no-I in team type of answer. 
So that leads you to think, yeah, no ion team. That's a good way to, to think about it. But still, I'm questioning, is it true? Is there really no I in team? And we all know the answer to that. There is actually no I in the word team. But I did a lot of research and I actually looked up um, some psychological research, and we'll talk about that in a second, on what makes a good team te work. And the answer is actually, is there really no I in team? Maybe, maybe not, and actually probably not. So we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but before we dive into it, we're gonna do a little bit of like discussion and like writing down things. So if you have a piece of paper, great. If not, you can run back there and get a little um, bravery board notebook that's sitting on the, ca the counter over there. And, or if you don't have a pen or whatever, you don't have to write stuff down, just think about these three questions. Number one, think about a team that you've been a part of that worked well. Once, what's one that you've been a part of that worked well in your life? You either met your goals, everybody got along, you felt really great about your contribution, or you felt like the whole team just coalesced really well. A team that worked well. Second question is, think about a team that you've been a part of that has not worked so well. So maybe you failed miserably. Everybody hated each other by the time that you were done. There was a lot of fighting. Um, maybe one person did all the work. Whatever the answer is, think of one that didn't do so well. And the last one was, what was different about the two teams? So think about it for maybe like two minutes, a minute, and kind of write down some, jot down some ideas about maybe what those teams were, think about it for a minute, and then we're actually gonna sit and talk about it for a second. So it's okay. It's on the board, so you're good to go. All right, so we're gonna take a minute, kind of think about this, and then after a few minutes, we're gonna have you guys kind of talk about it. So I'll tell you when to merge into the talking phase. <laughs> okay. That's good. You guys came up with a lot of really good ones, which I'm about to debunk all of it. <laughs> um, okay, so, so whenever I was studying a lot of this, um, I actually dove into research because I'm a counseling person. I, I've all of the studies that I've, or I guess all of the, my, my schooling for counseling really came into like, what does the study say? What, what does the data show? So. I did, um, I looked up two predominant researchers on teamwork and what makes a team work. And the first guy, his name was Richard Hackman. He is um, known as kind of the leading researcher on teamwork and he dedicated his entire life to it. He actually has passed away now, but I read several of his articles about different aspects of teamwork and a lot of, we'll get to it at some point, but he ended up talking a lot about leadership and a lot about teamwork and why teams work. and. Anyway, so he's the number one guy. Second guy that I, I listened or listened to on a podcast and then read his book, his name is Marcus Buckingham. And he wrote a book called Nine Lies About Work. And so I read that book and mostly what it talks about is teamwork. And I didn't know that that book would be about teamwork necessarily. You'd think it'd be about your job experience and how things are going in the world of work. But really what it boiled down to was what, what teams work, what teams don't and all the reasons why. So it was a really good book to read. Um, but he also did, did a ton of research all around the world on successful teams, not successful teams, what was the difference, all of that. So um, I have been a part of good teams. I've been a part of not so good teams. I've been a part of mediocre teams. Um, and I was really interested in what makes a good team good. But the research actually states that it's not, a lot of us would think about 
a leader, that the leader would be the person that would make a team good. And it's actually not that. It doesn't matter what the leader is. That's what the, both of the researchers said. Um, it also said that it's not about the, the team members being well-rounded, like all of the, the, all of the members of the team have to put in a lot of effort or that they are really well-rounded in their skills. That, that, that's not the juju, the magic sauce. Um, and also it's not that the goal that they're seeking is better than another or even that they believe in that goal more than, than another. So if you're thinking about what makes a good team good, the most successful teams have an environment surrounding them which allows their members to grow and thrive as individuals and use their strengths. It's not exactly what you think. We think teamwork is about passing the ball, about making sure that there's no individual being raised up among another, or that you have to kind of humble yourself so that you can let other people work really well. But that's not what the, the data shows. The success of a team has a lot more to do with us as individuals than it does about how we work as a whole. So, there's no I in team, but there is an M and an E. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had to go there, sorry. <laughs> but as Marcus Buckingham said in his book, The Nine Lies About Work, I'll read this to you. It's just in case you want to follow along. It's really long. But this was kind of the pinpoint of one of the parts that I read that I thought was really interesting. So he says, the data does not lie. Of the eight conditions that are the signature of the highest performing teams, there's one in particular that stands out in study after study, irrespective of industry, irrespective of nationality, as the single most powerful predictor of a team's productivity. It's each team member's sense that I have the chance to use my strengths every day at work. No matter what kind of work your team is doing, and no matter which part of the world you are working in, your team will always be most productive when more team members feel delight and joy in what they do every day. That's the special sauce. I agree. Yeah. So if you think about what made you feel good in the teams that you've been a part of that are good, has it been that you're working in your strengths? Has it been that you're doing the things that you love? Because that's what the research is showing. And I, I didn't like do a lot of, I'm not gonna like show you all the studies or whatever, but there's study after study after study. And what's interesting is that this guy, Richard Hackman, who did a lot of research oh, over the last few decades, and then this guy that's coming out with all this research right now, they lined up in different ways a little bit. Like they came up with different, they kind of explained it differently and all of that, but both of these guys that did a lot of research on teams both talked about individuality as being one of the most important parts. I thought that was really cool. So this begs the question, are we operating in our strengths and finding joy in our everyday? Yeah. And if not, what are we gonna do about it? In this podcast that I listened to with Marcus Buckingham, um, he was on The Good Life Project, if any of you guys have ever heard that one before. Um, and it was a long, long podcast, and it was really good. But what really perked my ears whenever I was listening to it and what made me decide to buy the book was he started talking about this thing called the red thread. What he calls is the red thread is what makes us come alive. And it's the thing that makes us uniquely us. It's what makes us tick as individuals. Um, and he said a lot about how corporations, groups, 
even us as individuals, that we're often at times afraid of our red threads or we're afraid of other people's red threads because that's what makes them an individual. And our natural tendency, especially when we're part of groups, is to want to figure each other out. So when you're kind of weird or different, we don't like that. We don't want you to be weird. We don't want you to stick out. We want you to be like everybody else. So corporations, a lot of time, he went into this long bit about uh, competency models and like <laughs> all the trainings that we go through at work to make us kind of homogenistic and all come together. That he said actually kind of need to ignore that a little bit to be successful. Um, we also want everyone else to look the same so that we can figure them out, but we want us to look the same a lot of times. And I know I've done this a lot in the groups that I've been a part of that maybe weren't so successful for me, is that we want to fit in and we want to succeed based on other people's standards, but we're not thinking about what makes us tick and what makes us good in a group, what we have to offer. And instead, we're kind of putting ourselves down trying to look like everybody else. Um, Marcus found in his research that he figured out that the most successful people, the CEOs, but also the groups that did really well, the most successful people didn't homogenize. They didn't try to conform, and they weren't trying to be controlled. They got really good at their red threads. And so instead of spending so much time trying to figure out how to hone in on traits that maybe are not ours, maybe somebody else's, or maybe what a corporation tells us, or maybe what our bosses tell us we should get good at, we should really be thinking about what we're good at naturally and what makes us come alive and hone in on those. So we should try cultivating our, our red threads more in what areas we can. And he kind of came up a, with a good list of ones that kind of maybe are examples. So he said, these things are the things that make you like uniquely come alive. So it could be one person, it's like operating under stress. Like you're really good at meeting that deadline, but that deadline's coming up and then all of a sudden you just spring into action and you do a really good job. That's not me, but some people, that's, they're really good at that. Other people, it may be employing empathy skills. If they get a chance to do that at work, they're gonna be happier. Um, another organizing, maybe somebody using physical strength. Um, somebody else that's unleashing creative or innovative ideas. Whatever it is, whatever makes you tick, whatever makes you feel like you come alive, do more of it and that will make you successful in a team. And I'm not here to say that I'm uniquely good at this. I just did a lot of the research. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Am I doing that in my life? And I would say in some ways I am because I was part of a team, the last job that I was in, I was in part of a team that I never really felt like I could be me. And that was part of probably the reason that led me to not be doing that job anymore. And part of the way that I've built my life, I work part-time for a nonprofit and I stay home with my kids two days a week. I do the bravery board. I do a lot of different things. But part of the reason I think that I've led in that direction is because I wanna have space to do my red threads. And so it's not that I'm actually doing them that much in my job, I'm not. But I'm doing them a lot on the side and that's what's making me happy. And so I think that that's an interesting thing to think about. It may not be that you're in your job doing your red threads all the time, but whatever it is that makes you feel you, do more of that because you're gonna be better at being part of the world of work. You're gonna be part of it better in teams and all of that. So the last point I'll, part, I'll talk about is leadership because you can't really read anything about teams without leading, reading a lot about readers, leadership. So I read a lot about that subject. And 
kind of the question came to my mind is what if you're what if some of the listeners today are leaders of teams and they want to be better at showing their teams how to follow their red threads the research on leadership was actually very similar to what makes a successful team member actually makes a good successful leader and the thing that was pointing out he pointed out over and over again Marcus and uh, Richard Hackman was is that leaders are leaders simply because others follow them it's not because they have a specific set of traits that we all are like yes good leaders have communication skills good leaders have this set of uh, values they're really good at casting vision they're really directional and he talked a lot about how good leaders are good leaders for a lot of different reasons but the research showed that none of that really matters. What matters is, is that we choose to follow people because we like them, <laughs> because we like what they're doing, because we think that they are living in their strengths. And if you think about the leaders that you think are really good leaders, the people that you follow on Instagram or the people that you wanna be like, it's because they have a vision, because they're really good at something and they can cast that vision to other people. And so that was kind of what the research said. Leaders don't have one trait in common, they lead in different ways. And we choose to follow people who are living their, in their strengths and joy. It's like a magnet. We follow authenticity and greatness. We follow the people who are fo following their own red threads. So the guy, Richard Hackman, that I talked about, he went, he had this really long article that I read about leader attribution bias, meaning that we think that good leaders make good teams. That's why coaches get fired if they have a bad season or why leaders get bonuses if their team does really well and raises sales goals and all of that. But he said that the really good leaders need to be a lot more like jazz music musicians than symphony orchestra leaders. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of things that you do. It's more about improvisation and finding the people that you're leading and going down their red threads and helping them follow those red threads and you following your own. So I'll, le I'll leave you with the last really long quote, sorry, um, but it's again from Marcus Buckingham and it's talking about leadership but it's also, this is the last part of his book about teams, so it's kind of wrapping the whole thing up. And he says, leading and following are not abstractions, they're human interactions, human relationships. And their currency is the currency of all human relationships, the currency of emotional bonds, of trust, and of love. If you as a leader forget these things and yet master everything that theory world tells you matters, you will find yourself alone. But if you understand who you are at your core and hone that understanding into a few special abilities, each of which refracts and magnifies your intent, your essence, and your humanity, then in the real world, we will see you and we will follow. So that's the research. I didn't tell you because it's a set of my values. I said, told you because that's a lot of what people are finding in the real world, that it's more about who you are that makes you an individual about how you can work in a good team. The end. Hey guys, Michelle here. If you liked what was talked about on this podcast, let us know. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Also, we kind of want to know who you are. We know we have listeners from all over the world, so please reach out. You can find us by searching The Bravery Board on Facebook or Instagram, 
or by going to our website, thebraveryboard.com. Also, please give us a rating in iTunes. Yeah, we know it kind of takes a few minutes, but it helps us spread the word. And we're kind of all about this message of thriving. As always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being you. You guys are awesome.